So church, as we're gathered to listen to his word, we, I invite you to turn with me to Galatians chapter 5 this morning. For those of you that are visiting this morning, we're walking through the book of Galatians. Last week, Blake Jenkins, our minister to college students, just did a fantastic job faithfully explaining and applying God's word from Galatians chapter 4. Last week, Danielle and I, this will be our 20-year anniversary in December, December the 18th, if we celebrate 20 years. And so we took this past weekend to have a little bit of anniversary trip, and we drove over to Savannah, Georgia. We've never been to Savannah. Savannah is a beautiful place, historic place. Uh, it's wonderful places to eat in Savannah. Um, we had some great meals. We had a Cracker Barrel one night. It was really good. So, <laughs> just, just joking, just joking, just joking, just joking. Um, so last Sunday, you were gathered here. You were worshiping, and we were worshiping at Christ Church, Christ Anglican Church in Savannah. It was planted in 1733. So for those of you who have some sense of church history in Christ Church, John Wesley was the rector for a year. The founder of Methodism was the rector of that congregation. George Whitfield, who arguably was the greatest evangelist outside of the Apostle Paul to ever live, spearhead of the uh, Great Awakening in the 18th century, he was the rector of Christ Church. The first hymnal ever published in the American colonies, John Wesley's brothers, Charles Wesley, who wrote hundreds, thousands of hymns, it came out of that church. And um, the first organization of Sunday school came out of that church. So it was, it was really powerful to be able to be connected to that great cloud of witnesses that comes before us. And so thankful for each and every one of you. We're thankful to worship there and we're thankful to be here with you this morning as, as we worship. Uh, Galatians chapter 5 verse 1 is one of the uh, more memorable passages in all of the book of Galatians and it is Paul's words that read, for freedom Christ has set us free, stand firm therefore and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Like much of God's word, we, we read words and we superimpose meaning upon them. And it's very difficult for us at times to read Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, outside of an American context of independence and freedom. We hear, for freedom Christ has set us free, and we, we think uh, Star Spangled Banner, and we think July 4th, we think FDR, July 1941, who stands before the Congress, and you have the fascist regime of Hitler that is encroaching upon European freedom, and FDR stands before Congress and says that any threat to freedom around the world is a threat to freedom that we hold dear in uh, the United States, and so he utters his famous speech called The Four Freedoms, where he told the Congress there that freedom of speech everywhere and freedom of worship everywhere and freedom from want everywhere and freedom from fear everywhere is at the heart of human flourishing and where that's attacked around the world. So we must not have a position of neutrality, but we must engage for the sake of freedom. And not to say that Paul disagrees with that, but that's not what he's talking about in this passage. To understand the freedom that Paul is talking about here, it's very important for us to understand there is a bondage to sin that Christ has set us free from. And there is a bondage to the Old Testament law that Christ has set us free from. 
And so in that first century context of the Galatian churches, you would have false teachers that were saying, hey, yes, you're set free from sin through the finished work of Jesus, but you need Jesus plus the observance of the Old Testament law, Jesus plus faithfully being circumcised. And so you had the cross plus circumcision that ultimately Paul is saying, no, 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 no. You've been set free. And so in Galatians chapter 4, verses 21 through 26, Paul tells us, which really flows into Galatians chapter 5, that there is an obstacle to your freedom. And that obstacle is an observance of the law. Notice how Paul talks about this in Galatians chapter 4. He draws upon a rich Old Testament story from Genesis 16. And we read, starting in verse 21 of Galatians 4, Tell me, you who desire to be under the law... Do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. Thank you, Paul, for telling us this. We would not understand what he's talking about unless Paul says, hey, I'm I'm telling you a metaphor here. This is an allegory here. These women are two covenants, verse 24. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children from slavery. She is Hagar. Verse 25, now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. Okay, what is Paul talking about here? He, he's drawn upon Genesis chapter 16, the promises given to God by God to Abraham that you, Abraham, are going to be the father of a great nation. Well, here's the problem. They did not have children at that time in Genesis chapter 12. And so Sarah and Abraham, Sarah being barren, they long for children, they wait for children, but they can't have children. And this goes on not only for weeks, not only for months, but for years. And finally, Sarah and Abraham said, we've got, we've got to help God out with this. So they concoct a plan. Now, it was a plan that was familiar in that ancient Near Eastern world. It isn't like they were the first people to do this, but they found one of the servants of Sarah, and they say, hey, Hagar, you are going to have a child with my husband, Abraham, and this is how we are going to fulfill the promises God has given to us. So they they get impatient with God's timetable. And here Paul is saying, that is not the son of the promise, but that's the son of the flesh. That's that's doing things in your way and in your will. And so through that union between Abraham and Hagar, you have the son Ishmael. Well, eventually God is faithful to his promises to Sarah, and they have a child, and that child is named Isaac. Well, of course, there is not going to be familial bliss back on the ranch when you have Hagar and Ishmael and you have Sarah and Isaac. And so Sarah says, get her out of here. Get Hagar out of here. Get Ishmael out of here. And so Paul draws upon this story and he says, for those individuals that are adding to Christ's circumcision, you're living back in that Ishmael way. You're living back in that flesh. Now, there was a purpose for the Old Testament covenant, but in Christ it has been fulfilled. So the obligations of the law you cannot keep. And when you try to keep one part of the law, you have to keep all of the law. Well, Paul is saying here that ultimately you have to choose. Are you a son of the promise, the son of Isaac? Or are you the son of Ishmael, one according to the flesh? So he's, he's drawing this illustration to help us understand the role of the Old Testament law that has a point 
And that point is to draw us to our knees, understanding that we cannot perfectly keep the law. But praise God, there is one. His name is Jesus who has fulfilled the law. And so when we trust in Jesus, ultimately we perfectly keep the law because he has kept the law. But when you add grace to grace, circumcision, you're going back to those fleshy days. You're going back to those Old Testament days. And why would you do that, Paul is saying. Another way to help us kind of think about this is an illustration I heard Scott McKnight, who is a professor at North Park Seminary outside of Chicago, he he talked about, just think about a typewriter. Think about a typewriter and contrast it to a computer. Some Some of you in this room, you wrote your master's thesis on a typewriter, and you wrote PhD dissertations on the typewriter. And I just say, uh, I, am, I'm, I cannot even begin to imagine how difficult that is. I mean, the whole, you know, and all that kind of stuff. That's exactly how a typewriter sounds, if you wanted to know what that is. Just what I did with my mouth right there. So uh, you're typing on a typewriter. And now everything that a typewriter wanted to be when a typewriter grew up to be a, a, a grown person is fulfilled in what? A computer. When you're typing on a computer, guess what? You're utilizing the technology of that typewriter, but it's in fulfillment here. That You would never go back to a typewriter once you had a MacBook on your desk, right? You never go back to a typewriter once you had a Chromebook. Could you imagine as a freshman at Sanford, you're going to your biblical perspectives class, and then you pull out of your backpack a typewriter to type all your notes with? I, I, need, a, I, need, I need some more paper over here, you know, as you're typing your notes. You go to Vesavia or Homewood or to Hoover or Gardendale or go to Briarwood, and you got, you got a 10th grade class. Got a tenth, did I miss any schools right back there? What'd I miss? What'd I miss? Mountain Brook, of course. You go to Mountain Brook. Any other classes, schools? Oak Mountain. Any others? Okay, I missed some other ones. But everybody gets the point right here. So it's hard to be inclusive. You try. You try to get them all, but there's just a lot of them right there. So all the schools that our chapel choir could be represented in in a given Monday here. So there are all of their schools. And they walk into a history class. And could you imagine any of our students pulling out of their backpack a typewriter to take history notes? And the answer to that is, of course not. Of course not. Why? Because the typewriter has found its fulfillment in the computer. And so why would you go back to something that had its place, that had its purpose? The Old Testament has its place. It has its purpose. There's no denying that by any stretch of the imagination. But there is a new day that we live in now. So we're a new covenant people. And Paul is saying to these Galatian Christians here, why are you reverting back? Why are you going back to a a day and an age of of slavery when you have been set free? Well, who have they been set free by? Well, that leads us to our second point, the source of our true freedom, which is Jesus. In Galatians chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, we read, For Christ has set us free, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he's obligated. And this is what Paul says, to keep the whole law. You accept circumcision, you're, you're obligated to keep the whole law. You're severed. Notice again the play on the words here. You're severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you've fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus... Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but only faith working through love. An important argument here that draws upon Galatians 4. I know you've got Galatians chapter 5 
right there as a heading. I, I know you see that it seems to be like a distinction, but this is just Galatians 4 flowing into Paul's words here. Paul, he's, just, he's just being more specific in applying the insanity of what somebody is doing in Galatians 4 to go back to the Old Testament law when we've been set free through the work of Christ here. So he says in verse 3 of Galatians 5, if you accept circumcision, guess what? You're obligated to keep the entirety of the law. Well, you can't do that. I can't do that. If, if we are under the law, we are helpless and we are hopeless. So to go back to Christ plus circumcision is to misunderstand the whole freedom that we have in Christ and what he has done. In verse 4, he says, if you rely on your works, you sever yourself. Again, he's drawing upon this image of circumcision here. And he's saying, when you put all of your hope in what you need to do, you ultimately are removing yourself from the sufficiency of Christ in your life. And then notice what he says, you fall from grace. Some of you in this room, a lot of you in this room have grown up in Baptist context where you've heard the phrase, once saved, always saved. There are many of you in this room that have come from Presbyterian backgrounds where you've heard the perseverance of the saints so that Christ's work is ultimately what secures us. He is faithful who begins the good work in us to bring it to completion. So is Paul, is Paul sort of disagreeing with himself? Is he contradicting what he said in Philippians chapter 1 verse 6? Is he saying that you can be a follower of Jesus and then, quote, unquote, fall from grace, that you once walked with Jesus and now through your works and through uh, ultimately looking to your flesh that you are not a follower? And it's very important for us to read Scripture in context. Because the whole point of Galatians is to put your security not in you, but in Christ. But if you put your whole security... In Christ plus circumcision, Christ plus the works of the law, and you can fill in that blank that you are a Christian if you trust in Christ and you're justified by faith and his grace alone, but you add to it what Paul is saying is, is that is an indication that you are apart from Christ. You've been in the church. I mean, you can be baptized in the church, you can be a member of a church and not be a true, authentic follower of Christ. And one way to know that is that ultimately you depend upon yourself for the security of your salvation. And Paul is saying for any person, any person in the first century and any person in the 21st century that adds to the cross, you ultimately are severing yourself from the authentic gospel. It isn't that Christ is looking down from heaven saying, I hope they can figure it out. I hope they can do enough. I hope they can do enough. I hope they can do enough. Our salvation isn't in what we do, but what he has done. Our, our salvation isn't bask in your goodness, but rather bask in the goodness and glory of God that has set you free through his son. These two themes cannot coexist. And Paul is using the strongest words to, to wake up those early first century believers, thinking that you can be justified through faith alone and you can be justified by your works, and they cannot coexist under the umbrella of the Galatian Christian church. And they cannot coexist under the umbrella of the church in the 21st century. They are contradictory. They do not coexist. And so when we put our hope in ourselves, we are ultimately severing ourselves from the grace of Jesus Christ here. When Danielle and I first started dating, 
my grandmother, we had sort of the obligatory bring Danielle. We were weeks, maybe months into our dating relationship. And so my grandmother, my mom's mother, lived in the same community that I grew up in and went to college in. And so we were able to go to her house, my grandfather's house, for a meal. And my nana, I called her nana, my grandmother, who's now with the Lord in heaven, and my grandfather, who's with the Lord in heaven. But I just remember vividly the first time we went over there for dinner. I don't know if you have a grandparent that is sore like this. She's just prodded herself in feeding her grandchildren and feeding her. I mean, that just, she just found so much satisfaction in the kitchen and bringing food and everybody being filled and enjoying her food. And one of the things that my Nana prided herself with is that when it was served, it was finished. It didn't need anything else. So uh, one of the things I didn't tell Danielle was, well, it happened this way. We're sitting around the table. Everybody bit into something. And my uh, Danielle said to my Nana, uh, Ms. Shropshire, do you mind passing the salt and pepper? The forks dropped out of our hands and <laughs> silverware was clashing against China. Things were breaking everywhere. I mean, there was just gasping that occurred. So I had not informed her that there is no salt and pepper at the table. So my grandmother, very, you know, sort of southernly, passive aggressive, said to her, well, Danielle, can I ask you what needs salt and pepper? <laughs> like, you got to justify this. You got you to tell me. And so uh, I don't remember this, but I remember it in my mind this way, Danielle saying, everything tastes great. Everything tastes great. I don't remember how that came to a resolution, but 20 years later, we're married and everything's worked out really well. So... Uh, <laughs> But out of all the things that Jesus could have said on the cross, I mean, you've got Jesus hanging upon the cross, and out of all the things that he says from the cross, that one phrase that just sticks with me, especially in conversation with Paul's words to the Galatian Christians, where Jesus says, it is finished. That my work on your behalf, it doesn't need to be seasoned with any of your works. There's not one thing I'm asking you to do to complete this finished offering. The great high priest has offered himself as the once and for all sacrifice. And there's nothing that you add to it. There's nothing that I add to it. We, we bow our knees and we trust in the finished work of Jesus. This is the source of our freedom. There is an obstacle to our freedom, which is the law. There's the source of our freedom, which is Jesus. And there is the purpose and nature of our freedom that Paul continues in this passage to elucidate for us here in verses 7 through 12, where he calls them, he says, run well. Run well, Galatian Christians. Turn from the false gospel. In verse 12, he utilizes the strongest image that's available to him. He, he, he says, I would rather that the false teachers emasculate themselves instead of leaving the gospel and leading away uh, th those individuals under the purview of their teaching. And he is saying, I, I would, uh, the, with the strongest possible words that he can say, utter seriousness coming forth from this warning here. 
And then he leads us in verses 13 through 14 to what we're called to do in light of the freedom that we've received in Christ. And we read, you, my brothers, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Rather, serve one another in love. Do you hear what Paul is saying here? Don't, don't indulge the flesh, but serve one another in love. The entire law is summed up as a single command, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, notice what Paul is saying. He's saying, I know. I know 2,000 years ago, Paul knew in that context that there were going to be people that saw their freedom as a license, that if their justification was in Christ alone, a faith alone, for God's glory alone, that there are going to be some that say, since I am free, that is an umbrella to, and a license to do whatever I please. I'm found in Christ then I can do, I can indulge my flesh. I can write blank, I've got an endless set of blank checks here to write upon the, the capital and the deposit of the cross. And so uh, the sin that I should repent of, I just engage in, engage in, engage in, and say it's, I'm covered by his grace. And at times, not even 2,000 years ago, but times right now in our culture, there is a big umbrella that floats around that you hear, and it's freedom in Christ, freedom in Christ. I'm free in Christ, so I can believe what I want to believe. I'm free in Christ. I'm free in Christ, so I can do what I want to do. I'm free in Christ. I'm free in Christ, so I can indulge sinful habits. I don't have to repent of sin because I'm, I'm free in Christ. And there are times where we use that umbrella of freedom in Christ. You'll hear it to indulge the flesh. We will engage in activities that ultimately we should confess and repent of, but under this false understanding of the gospel, we will use it as this umbrella of license. And Paul says, no, 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 no. Freedom is not a license for you to indulge your sinful nature, but you are free. And notice what he says here. He's drawing upon the echoes of Jesus' own words where you have the teacher of the law that comes to Jesus and, and, and ask him, how do we sum up the Old Testament law? And what does Jesus say? He says, love your God and love your neighbor. And here Paul is channeling the words of Jesus as he gives that command that we are free to do what? Not to just sit around basking in our freedom. Not to say, look at me, I'm free. But rather, we are free to love our neighbor as ourselves. We're free to do. We're free to live under the great joy that there are people in the schools that we attend who are ostracized, who've just moved in, having a difficult year, and we're free to reach out to them. We're free to reach out to them, not because at the end of our life we can say to God uh, when he asks us, uh, what, what have you done Ultimately, to justify your salvation, he's never going to ask us that. And praise God, he will not ask us that. And we never have to say, well, I love that person in the 11th grade. I reached out to that person. No, we're free to reach out to that person because he's reached out to us in his son, Jesus. We are free to reach out to a coworker and to love a coworker who at times can, can push people away. We don't have to do that to earn our salvation. We don't have to do that to have enough good works. And if we could really love this person, then that will really show that we're very serious about our faith. No, we are free to love this person because we have been ostracized from Christ in our sinful nature. And Christ has come to us when we're far from him, alienated from him, enemies of him. And because of what he has done, so we're free to love. 
We're free to love those that are closest to us. You know, the people, it's a principle of proximity. It always is. The people that are closest to us oftentimes can do the most harm to us. The people that are closest to us can often receive the, the, the most, uh, the leftovers of our life, the leftovers of our words, the leftovers of our affection. And at times, we, we don't give to those that are closest to us the patience that we give to people in our work life. And what Paul is saying is you're free to love your spouse. You're free to love your parents. You're free to love your siblings. You're free to love your children. Not because at the end of the day, you have to justify that you have done enough, but rather the opposite. He has paid it all. So you're free to love. You're free to allow the Holy Spirit that that lives in you to connect to those around you. And it is a powerful testimony. It is a powerful testimony when you live in such a way that you realize that he is your identity. It frees you up to be able to give to people what you would not in your flesh naturally give to them. It's a great freedom to love. I'm fearful that a name by the name of Robertson McQuilkin is a name that is getting lost to the history of the 20th century, but... It's a name that you should know. Robertson McQuilkin was the president of Columbia International University for years. He was a missionary. He and his wife served the mission field. They served as, as he was a professor, pastor, teacher, and ultimately a president. His wife's name was Muriel. In 1948, they got married. Here's a picture of their wedding day here. 1981, decades later, she was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. In the light of that diagnosis, for the next nine years, he continued to serve as the president of Columbia University, but he realized with each passing year that it was becoming more difficult to do the duties of the presidency and to care for his ailing wife. So long before he had to, long before trustees forced him to, he stood before a chapel of 18 to 22-year-olds primarily, and he read his resignation letter to these students and to the faculty of Columbia University. And, and notice the words in his resignation. Duty, when we think of it, is grim and stoic. But there's much more than duty. I resign from serving as your president Because I love Muriel. She is a delight to me. Her childlike dependence, her confidence in me, her warm love, occasional flashes of that wit that I used to relish so. Her happy spirit, her tough resilience in the face of her continually distressing frustration. Don't be mistaken, I don't have to care for her. I get the privilege too. It's a high honor to care for so wonderful a person. For the next 12 years, Robertson McQuilkin wrote from home, occasionally traveled to preach, for 12 years cared for his bride until she went to be with her Lord and Savior. 
2003, Robertson McQuilkin penned a book that is a memoir of his experiences and is aptly entitled, A Promise Kept. And I think it's helpful for us to hear this illustration because what have you been set free to do? I mean, you've been set free from the bondage of sin. Paul is so clear to say this, but it's more than you've been set free from the bondage of sin. You have been set free from the endless preoccupation with you. You know, one of the greatest slaveries that we experience in life is, is the slavery of me, myself, and I. What do I get out of this? How does this help me? How, how does this increase my image? How does this help me climb the corporate ladder? When your identity is in Christ, you are crucified with self. And no longer do you live, but Christ lives in you. And you're free every day to deny self, not for the sake of saving yourself, but you're free to deny self, to love those that are closest to you, to love those that you interact with in school, the individuals you interact with at work. You're, you're freed from the endless preoccupation with me, myself, and I. What are you set free from and what are you set free for? Well, Paul gets the last words. Do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Rather, Christians, serve one another in love. The entire law is summed up in a single command. Love your neighbor as yourself. And for all of us in this room, that is the last word. Gracious God, we come to you this morning grateful that you have set us free and that freedom is not to indulge the flesh but a freedom to live a life of love. We're surrounded by tragedy and hurt that is very perceptible to all of us that are in this room and our hearts go out, our hearts bleed, our hearts ache. Let us be reminded that every day we have the opportunity to, to show the love of Christ to those that are closest to us, those that we work alongside of, and we cannot do that in our own strength. And we just thank you, God, that we don't have to do that to justify our salvation, to prove to you how worthy we are. We realize the opposite, that we are unworthy of your love. We're unworthy of salvation. But while we were dead in our sins, you came to us and you've captured us by your grace. And so we bask not in what we've done, but what you've done. We bask not in our glory, but in your glory. And that frees us because we know our identity is bound in you. And no matter what occurs in our life, we're fixed to you, cemented to you, Christ. So give us the inspiration and the dwelling of the Holy Spirit to guide us to the, to the hard places this week to the difficult situations, maybe the difficult work situations to show the love of Christ, to take one step where we show the love of Christ 
Maybe that person that is alienated, ostracized in our own school environment, that we would show the love of Christ. We take one step, a step toward kindness, a step toward love, a step toward you. For some of us, that needs to be a step toward our spouse, a step to son, a son maybe that's living in a foreign land, a daughter that has not come home would lead us because we understand this word will follow us in a myriad of ways outside of this sanctuary. So we want to be obedient to your word, led by your spirit. We can't do that in our strength. And thank you, God, that we do not have to do that in our strength. So we pray for your spirit to lead us to where you would call us. May we be found faithful as your people. It's in your name we pray. Amen.